Welcome to the Lagan Valley Vineyard Podcast. We are a community passionate about seeing Lagan Valley filled with the presence and the teachings of Jesus. If you would like to connect with us or if we can help you in any way, please visit our website, laganvalleyvineyard.com. afternoon. Don't let the rain make you all get sleepy. Um, you're so welcome. If we haven't met before, I'm Andy. I'm the senior pastor here. If you are joining us online, we apologize for some technical difficulties this morning, but we made it, and so did you. Um, we're so glad you're here. Um, turn to the person beside you and say, menopause. just wondering how much you would have to say to each other about that. Um, seriously, we are uh, thrilled to have somebody like Pauline uh, Crory, part of this community, and uh, we love what she leads uh, around us and for us. There will be a sign-up link uh, in this week's weekly email to that event, so uh, if you're kind of wondering how do I find Eventbrite or where do I go for that, it's in your weekly email. If you don't get weekly emails from us, there's a connection card. I don't know why I'm waving a pen. Uh, there's a connection card on your seats, or you can chat to somebody in the foyer. Uh, they can get you signed up. We do need your permission to send you emails. Uh, so if you speak to some of the connection team, they would love to connect you in uh, with that. You'll be getting emails uh, from us. Also, uh, if you have any questions about tribes, um, what we're doing there uh, around tables, James will be in the, the foyer afterwards as well, and uh, he can connect you in to uh, any, any tribe that you would quite like or answer any of your questions. Um, we are about to jump into a new series that's going to take us through to Christmas, but before we do that, I just want to say uh, publicly a huge thanks to all the women who've been teaching the Bible in this community through the summer. Uh, we have had such a feast, such a treat, and they did an amazing job. Would you give them a round of applause, please? How many of you brought an actual Bible, paper Bible, not a distraction device with you today? Hannah Toll, you're winning. Um, there's a couple. Um, sorry, you're back to me now, um, who's uh, not maybe quite as gentle as some of the people you've been listening to for the last little while. Can I really encourage you over the next few months, bring a paper Bible, not your phone, bring an actual Bible. If you don't have a Bible, if you don't own a Bible, please take one home with you. It's our gift for you. We would love you to have that. Uh, here's what I know. Reading the Bible every day is hard. I struggle with that on a daily basis. Some of you say, time to write to the board and fire the pastor. Um, if any of you wonder if spiritual warfare exists, just try to read the Bible every day for a month. Watch what happens. Um, here's what I know in my own life. Whenever I am engaged in the Scriptures on a daily basis, I feel more resilient. I feel more connected to God. I feel more able to deal with all that comes uh, with life. And when I don't, I don't. Um, if you're here and you're just discovering faith, if you're new to church, uh, we want you to know that the Scriptures, the Word of God, are an integral part of what it means to be a follower of Jesus. They're not a bolt-on or an add-on. They're not a suggested part of what it means to follow Jesus. They are an absolutely critical, crucial, essential part of what it means to root our lives in the reality of God and His kingdom. And uh, we, or I, am going to on 
unapologetically poke you for the next kind of 10 weeks every Sunday about who brought their actual Bible. Um, it is a kind of a dream of Dana and mine over the next 10 years of Lagan Valley Vineyard that in 10 years' time, if you surveyed our church, the vast majority of us would have an intimate relationship with the God of the Scriptures through the Scriptures. That's really, really important uh, to us. So I'd love you to bring your Bible with you next week. Uh, we're going to be studying the book, or more appropriately called the letter, uh, to a bunch of people in a city called Colossians. Um, it's page 817 in your black Bibles. I'm going to read Colossians 1 uh, through to verse 14 for us in just a second, but why don't you turn there, uh, if you've got a Bible with you, Colossians 1, if there's one sitting on a seat beside you, turn to page 817. I should also say, just before we read this, I got a text from a friend who was at the 930 service, and uh, actually I'll just read it to you, because, uh, well, I think it made me laugh after he sent a clarifying message, but uh, he <laughs> texted me at 10 to 12 and said, that was an annoying sermon. Thanks. <laughs> so, disclaimer, maybe before we jump into this today, come Holy Spirit, we need your help. Um, Colossians 1 verse 1 says this, Paul, an apostle of Christ Jesus by the will of God, Timothy, our brother, to God's holy people in Colossae, the faithful brothers and sisters in Christ, grace and peace to you from God our Father. We always thank God, the Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, when we pray for you. Because we have heard of your faith in Christ Jesus and the love you have for all of God's people, the faith and love that spring from the hope stored up for you in heaven and about which you have already heard in the true message of the gospel that has come to you. In the same way, the gospel is bearing fruit and growing throughout the whole world, just as it has been doing among you since the day you heard it and truly understood God's grace. You learned it from Epaphras, our dear fellow servant, who is a faithful minister of Christ on our behalf, and who also told us of your love in the Spirit. For this reason, since the day we heard about you, we have not stopped praying for you. We continually ask God to fill you with knowledge of His will through all the wisdom and understanding that the Spirit gives, so that you may live a life worthy of the Lord and please Him in every way bearing fruit in every good work, growing in the knowledge of God, being strengthened with all power according to his glorious might, so that you may have great endurance and patience and giving joyful thanks to the Father who has qualified you to share in the inheritance of his holy people in the kingdom of light. For he has rescued us from the dominion of darkness, brought us into the kingdom of the Son he loves, in whom we have redemption, the forgiveness of sins. Let's pray together. Father, we thank you for your word. Holy Spirit, we invite you to breathe on it. Come and speak to us. We humbly and boldly invite you. Come, change our lives. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Well, this, this letter to the church in this place called Colossae, um, Colossae reminds me a little bit of Lisburn. It's a town built beside a river. It wasn't a very important place. Uh, it was an important place in its history, but at this point in time, it kind of wasn't. It had lots of other big brother cities that were around it and more important than it. And Paul, this guy, is, is writing to a young church in that particular city. And one of the things I love about these letters in the Bible 
is they remind us that the scriptures, they're not some dead, impersonal, mysterious document. Like the Bible didn't come about because in some kind of far off mysterious place, angels arrived with pens and scribbled on some paper and hid them in a cave and then someone discovered them and put them all together and that's what the Holy Scriptures are. Quite the contrary, the Bible was written by real people for real people. We don't need to go into too much detail, but Paul, the guy who wrote this letter, was a human being just like you and me, who had to do all of the normal human things that you and me have to do on a daily or a weekly basis. The people we meet in the Scriptures, they're ordinary. They had feelings. They had friendships. They had heartaches. They had challenges. They made mistakes. They fell out with each other. They complained about their church leaders. This letter isn't some kind of disembodied, mysterious thing. It's a letter that was written by a human to a bunch of humans gathered around Jesus. It is as rooted and as grounded and as earthy as that. Let me give you a little bit of history and geography because Paul, who's writing this letter, didn't actually start this church. There was, like I said, a bigger, more important city nearby. It was called Ephesus. Paul started a church in that place, and a man from Colossae traveled to Ephesus where he gave his life to Jesus and began to be discipled and trained up by Paul in what it would look like to actually go and preach the gospel to the city that he came from and establish a community of faith in that place. His name was Epiphras, and we read about him in verse 7. When Paul is telling this church everything about the gospel, you learn from that guy, your friend, and he mentions him at the end of the letter as well. It seems that Epiphras has started this church in this city called Colossae. It's, it's kind of blossomed, it's flourished. Lots of people have come to faith and all of the things that come with church are now happening. And it's a fair assumption that Epiphras has now traveled to find Paul, who incidentally is in prison, we'll talk about that more in a minute, to visit him in prison and I think give him all the questions that he has about leading a church. Because this may come as a shock to you, this is an incredibly difficult job. And it's only an incredibly difficult job because churches are full of people like you. <laughs> churches are full of humans. And humans are weird. And they get on each other's nerves and you know, they make mistakes and they do things and say things to each other that they don't like and all that kind of stuff happens. So obviously this guy, Epiphras, he's traveled to find Paul in prison and he's explained all the problems that he's having with the church. And Paul's like, I know what I'm going to do. I'm going to write them a letter. And, and you can take it back and then tell them what I have to say. What you need to understand is there is a cultural and political backdrop to this real world, real time that we're kind of jumping into here. There was an empire ruling all of these lands. That empire was called Rome. Like I said, Paul is now under arrest. And he's not under arrest for like smuggling drugs. He's not under arrest for doing some horrifically terrible crime. He's under arrest because the fruit of the ministry of Jesus flowing out of his life was so disruptive to the cultural norms 
that those in authority felt like we can't cope with this. We're going to have to put this man in jail. Like just imagine what must have been going on in the church. Now, here's what you need to understand. The church in Ephesus, it wasn't like, you know, doing all these political protests and like all these like really dodgy things that were going to cause the, the authorities to go, these people are really, really dangerous. What actually was going on was the fruit of the ministry of the gospel flowing out of Paul's life and bubbling up in the church and churches around what it was doing, it was subverting all of the systems, the established systems of power and the accepted cultural hierarchies to the point that the authorities went, we can't cope with this anymore. The cultural norm in this contest was a really strict hierarchy of society based largely on race, gender, and wealth. And so there were all kinds of cultural practices and norms that told the culture who was important and who wasn't important. And those who were important were able legally, to a greater or lesser extent, to exploit those who weren't important. And that was just kind of normal. And then when Paul started to tell people about Jesus and his rule and reign in the world, it started to do something where people from different racial backgrounds and different genders and different educational um, attainment levels were now sitting across tables with each other as peers. And, and that was terrifying to those who were in control of the established order. The first fruits of new creation under the rule and reign of Jesus was the restoration of human dignity and equality for all. Like we, we think this whole idea of uh, equal rights and freedoms is kind of this new modern thing. It's as ancient as the church itself. The first community that started to say, it doesn't matter what race you are, it doesn't matter what gender you are, it, it doesn't matter how smart you are, it doesn't matter how much property you own. Because you are a human, you have intrinsic dignity and value and worth, and we're going to build something that the world can look at and say, wow, how do I get to be a part of that? That was called the church. And they put Paul in prison for it. We see in Paul's opening words, verse four, we have heard of your faith in Christ Jesus. So Epiphras has come, he's found Paul in prison. Paul's obviously done, they're like, how's it going? He went off there to start a church. Has anybody come to faith? What's going on? And he's obviously answered the question. In verse four, he says, we've heard of your faith in Christ Jesus and the love you have for all of God's people. It's an interesting anecdote, but you can already hear in it the seeds of the culture of the church. Not your love for people who are like you. Not your love for people who share your interests, for people at the same stage of life. The church was always supposed to be a community where the love of people who are not like us can grow. It's just about the only community like it. 
Like your golf club is full of people who like golf and not some other sport, right? Your gym is full of people who, depending on the gym, love to work out and look at themselves in the mirror. Just kidding. I'm playing. Relax. But almost all of the kind of places and the groups and clubs that we find ourselves in in the normal world have some kind of common theme or interest. It's this room that we get to look around. It's one of the reasons why, and I know it makes some of you uncomfortable, we encourage you to take moments to look around, smile, say hi, pray for each other. As you see people who have PhDs and people who left school when they were 14 and they are equal. We see people who are 21 and beautiful and the opposite. (laughs) And they are equal. That's utterly foreign in the world. It's foreign. We are bombarded morning, noon, and night in just about every other space of what valuable looks like, sounds like, and how it behaves. And largely, (laughs) doesn't look like us. Paul says, I've heard of the love you have for everyone. It's beautiful. Verse 6, Paul talks about the fruit that is growing spontaneously in the church. There's just stuff that's just growing because they've planted the gospel, the rule and reign of Jesus is producing something in people's lives. You know if you plant an apple tree, it is impossible for that apple tree to produce pears unless someone in the garden center has mislabeled the tree. Like apple trees produce apples. Pear trees produce pears. When you plant the gospel, you get love. That's what happens. Now, there's a wee tricky thing when you start to examine that statement. Because let's just assume for a second we're not talking about Lagan Valley Vineyard. But have you ever been or heard of a church where, you know, like there's not a lot of love? People talk about each other and gossip and organize in little groups and exclude people and can be a bit judgmental and grumpy. I'm not talking about us, of course. How does that happen? Like if we're doing everything we can to plant the gospel, how does that grow? Well, see, there's all sorts of sneaky things that go on. Plant the gospel, you get love. Plant religion, you get all kinds of weeds. Like if we gather here because we're trying to tick some sort of conscience box that you just feel a bit better about yourself because of what your mom said or your granny said or somebody in your family line said and so you come to church so that you don't feel as bad about yourself during the week, what grows out of that once it becomes cultural in a community is toxic because it's not actually the good news of Jesus that's causing us to be here. That's not what we're wrestling with. That's not what we're planting. That's not what's growing. 
plant the gospel, the good news of the resurrection and present rule and reign of Jesus, you get faith and hope and love. They grow in us like apples grow in apple trees. Faith that there is a God and that He is good. Hope that He will one day finish what He has started, making all things new and love the most beautiful, most powerful force in the universe. I wonder if you were to audit your life, think for a second on yourself, September 2021 versus September 2022, what fruit has been growing in your life? Is there more faith? Is there more hope? Is there more love? Or is there maybe less? I think actually the reality for most of us is actually we're probably just kind of the same. Like this is one of the curses of being an adult. We typically only ever change in crisis. And we talk a lot about change and we talk a lot about transformation, but the kind of dirty secret in the church often is our lives aren't changing. We're kind of stuck. We're kind of staying the same. What do we do about that? <clears throat> I'll pick that up in a little minute or two. Verse seven, Paul says, Epiphras has told us of your love in the Spirit. Now, this is important, your love in the Spirit. That's like, what do you mean, right? Like, I don't, I don't really know about you, but that doesn't make loads of sense to me just on a first reading of it. Your love in the Spirit, well, here's what it doesn't mean. It doesn't mean they're filled with all kinds of warm and fuzzy feelings towards each other. Just raise your hand if there's someone in this church that you don't like. Don't, I'm kidding. <laughs> you don't get to be a community this size. And if you're new, you're checking us out. Um, we do our best to try to be honest here. So um, <laughs> the reality is in a community this size, there will be people that you just don't really get on with. And what Paul is talking about here, this expression of love in the Spirit, it's a measure of love that's not determined by your feelings or emotions. They change on a daily basis. What matters is that the behavior that marks so much of the world, anger, lies, unforgiveness, is being replaced by kindness, gentleness, forgiveness, and this is the hardest bit, the acceptance of one another, even when there are major differences, racial, wealth, education, or cultural background. This idea of love in the Spirit was about a, a love that transcended fleeting emotions, was that they were actually learning how to live into a love that was so much more profound than that, a love that caused them to feel connected and loyal even to people who weren't like them. The real sign that God is working in a community. And Epiphras has told Paul, this is alive in Colossae. This church that has been established. These people are loving each other and they're not like each other. I wonder how true that could be said of as us. It's Lagan Valley Vineyard. Are we growing in our love for people who are not 
like us. It's hard. And sustaining that kind of love and sustaining that kind of life requires something more than we can manage on our own. I hope that's good news to some of you. Paul says, because of what I've heard God is doing with you, we haven't stopped praying for you. Now, that seems backwards to me. So, Ebifrest has arrived at this incredible um, account of all the amazing thing that's God doing in this city, and Paul says, because of that, I haven't stopped praying for you. Like, I don't typically pray for things that are going well. How about you? Like, usually when, when I'm praying, it's because something's not working, and then I'm like, flip right, I have to, I have to pray. My, maybe this should be titled Confessions with Andy this morning. My, my, my kind of issue often is that the things that are going well, I kind of forget to pray about. I'm like, that's going good. I'm going to pray about the thing that's not working. But Paul here seems to say, no, we, we actually need to lean the other direction. We need to learn how to see where God is at work and invest our prayer life in that and watch what happens. Paul says, because of what I've heard, I never stop praying for you. And this is his prayer. Imagine the kind of life that requires this kind of prayer, right? Imagine if your life required this kind of prayer. Paul says this, I continually ask God to fill you with the knowledge of his will through all wisdom and understanding that the Spirit gives, so that you may live a life worthy of the Lord and please him in every way, bearing fruit in every good work, growing in the knowledge of God, being strengthened with all power according to his glorious might, so that you might have great endurance and patience in giving joyful thanks to the Father who has qualified you to share in the inheritance of his holy people in the kingdom of the light. What a prayer. What kind of life requires that kind of prayer? Knowledge, wisdom, understanding, bearing fruit in every good work, being strengthened with all power so you can have great endurance and patience, giving joyful thanks, sharing in the inheritance of his holy people in the kingdom of the light. I wonder, have you ever had a time in your life for those of you who have been following Jesus for a while, have you ever had a time in your life where you were just, the way it's kind of described in church circles is you were on fire? That you were just full of passion and energy and like you just were trying everything you could to order your life around the things of God. And I wonder how many of you, that's like a distant memory. What happened? Well, here's the truth, and this is why Paul's saying, I've heard about all the amazing things that God's doing, and because of that, I'm praying for you, because when the gospel starts to bear fruit in our lives, it gets contested. Things in our life go wrong. We get disappointed. We get heartbroken. We lean into things with God, and they don't work out how we felt like they would, and we get angry. We feel abandoned sometimes. You see, we need wisdom and knowledge to be able to identify the sneaky lies that can kind of penetrate our minds as we try to follow Jesus and live into the kingdom of God in our lives. I see this all the time in my work when engaging with people and they start to talk to me about 
They tried to do this thing with God or that thing with God and it didn't quite work out. God expects our lives to bear fruit. And that's hard work at times. There are times and days when I can't be bothered. I don't want to. I'd much rather do something easier. But God expects our lives to bear fruit. And that can be hard work. We need his power because the things that he asks us to engage in, we are not able to do on our own. It's the most basic part of Christian discipleship. If everything that you think God's asked you to do, you can do on your own, well, just hurry up and then get on to the real stuff. There are things that God wants you to do that are impossible, and that might just be having fond feelings towards a colleague in work that requires a supernatural move of God for you to get there. We need His power to do the things that He's asked us to do. Paul prays that they would have great endurance and patience. Those are not words that I like. Great endurance and patience. Look, I love the suddenly moves of God. And we have had so many of those over the last 10 years of Lagan Valley Vineyard where we pray for something and then it just happens. I mean, it's the most exhilarating, incredible thing and usually I'm as shocked as anybody else. <laughs> it happened, what? <laughs> Whoa, there is a God. Um, <laughs> just playing, just playing. <laughs> I love, I love the suddenly moves of God. Love them. And the scriptures are full of suddenly moves of God. But if you pay attention, the suddenly moves of God are almost always preceded by a season or a time, often ages of waiting. Of waiting. Paul says, if you're going to last, church, young church in Colossae, if you're going to last, I'm going to have to pray for you to have great endurance and patience because there are things that God has called you to and he's asked you to invest your lives in that are going to take years to work themselves out. And if you think all this requires is you show up, you pray it and it happens, well, you're going to deal with a load of disappointment. Now, of course, we believe that the kingdom of God is invading our present, and there are times when we show up and we pray and it happens, but there are also loads of times when we don't. And what do we do with that place? What do we do in the waiting place? Paul says we need to develop great endurance and patience. How is your spiritual endurance right now? COVID was a wonderful gift in exposing our spiritual endurance. That lots of the things that we kind of just kind of lent on and that sustained us were just pulled away. And we went, I don't know what even this is anymore. You see, it's, it's easy to actually be sustained by someone else's endurance. 
But there are times and circumstances in our life when what's really in us gets exposed. Please don't feel in any way judged by that. It's just really helpful to be able to kind of assess that. How is your spiritual patience I mean, we could just camp there and do group therapy for me to unpack that for a little while. I am not a naturally patient person. Paul says you need great endurance. You need patience. And I find this really interesting, the way he has chosen to write this. He prays that this church, once it has grown in endurance and patience, would give joyful thanks. Like, again, it's backwards. Once you've seen your breakthrough give joyful thanks. That's how most of us live. Like we give joyful thanks when the things we've prayed for have happened. Paul says that's got nothing to do with Christian maturity. Spiritual maturity is being able to give joyful thanks in the midst of waiting and unanswered prayer. That requires something supernatural. That when life isn't the way we would like it, we find joyful thanksgiving bubbling up within us. You see, you can't white-knuckle that. You can't force that. That has to grow in you and bear fruit in you like apple trees bear apples. You see, if the answer to the question, how present is God, how good is God, how faithful is God, comes from our circumstances, then strap your seatbelt and good luck to you. Because your personal circumstances will change. There will be seasons of your life when you think I am the most blessed human in the world and there will be seasons in your life when your emotions will tell you God has abandoned you and he is not here. And if the answer to those questions, how good how faithful, how present, comes from your circumstances, then you end up brokenhearted and burnt out. If you answer the question, how good, how present, how faithful is God by what he has done for you in the life of Jesus and his death and resurrection, then you have an undentable foundation when it comes to your circumstances. This is how joyful thanks is available to us regardless of circumstances because we actually choose to put our mind on the cross and that's the answer how valuable we are to God. That's the answer how present is God to our life. That's the answer how faithful is he to me. It's already done. He has already demonstrated more than you could ever imagine of his love his kindness and his faithfulness in Jesus choosing to go to the cross for us. That's how joyful thanks becomes available or accessible to us by realizing that Jesus is what we long for and he is available to us right now. Paul finishes the opening of this letter. Speaking of Jesus, he says, for he has rescued us from the dominion of darkness, brought us into the kingdom of the son he loves, in whom we have redemption, the forgiveness of sins. For he has rescued us from the dominion of darkness, the place where we are chased by our mistakes, where 
words of we're not good enough or we'll never measure up or our lives can't amount to anything. We've been delivered from that dominion. And he's brought us into the kingdom of the son he loves. It's interesting, we're gonna be reflecting on what kingdoms actually look like and how they work in the news like we have never maybe seen in our lifetime anyway. The kingdom of the son he loves, the place where Jesus rules and is proclaimed sovereign. The place where what he wants is available to you in your life, in whom we have redemption, the forgiveness of sins. Um, one of the gifts of growing up in Ireland is we all have, uh, to a greater or lesser extent, a cartload of shame we carry around. Like there's a... In, in the last 20 years of my ministry, it's one of the things I think is quite unique to this place. It's not any better or worse than some of the other cultural issues other countries have that I've spent some time in. But here, it's so interesting to me, people who've been following Jesus for decades and people who are like, I have nothing to do with church and I'm not interested in God. There is an incredible amount of shame that we kind of live with. It's just normal, that sense that we're not quite good enough. Paul says in Jesus, we have redemption, the forgiveness of sins, that no matter how bad it has been, in Jesus, you get to be forgiven. Um, any of you remember that really old Robert De Niro movie called The Mission? Some of you will know the classical tune, Gabriel's Oboe. It was written for that movie. It's an amazing movie. I'm not going to ruin it by telling you this. It's not quite a spoiler, but it's my favorite scene in the movie where Robert De Niro's done this horrific thing. And this big mountain to climb to go and speak to these indigenous people that live in the jungle. And part of his penance or his punishment is he has to drag a net, a big rope net that's tied around him up this mountain. And eventually he gets up the mountain and he's totally exhausted and he's bleeding from everywhere. And the indigenous people kind of surround him from the jungle. And it was quite common in those days that when that happened, you all got killed. And one of the guys in the tribe comes over to Robert De Niro, who's on his knees, and he puts the knife to his throat. And it's really powerful. You can just, the way it, it plays out on the screen is Robert De Niro is desperate for the guy to kill him. Like his shame and his burden is so great that you can just see it in his eyes and the way he's leaning in. He's just desperate for the guy to slit his throat. And in an instant, Instead of cutting his throat, he cuts the rope and the weight he's been dragging falls down the mountain. That's the gospel. That whatever you're carrying, whatever is killing you in Jesus, he cuts you loose from. And in that joy and thanksgiving flow in our lives in a way that is undentable by circumstance. Wherever you are this afternoon, choosing to put Jesus at the center will change your life. If you're able, will you stand? Alex, come on up.
As we begin uh, this new term, this is uh, it's kind of sort of Sunday school-esque, but the answer to whatever question you're carrying right now is Jesus at the center. That's Paul's answer to this young church. That's basically the thing that he weaves through almost every chapter and every verse. How do we make this work? How do we make sense of our lives? How do we deal with this challenge or that challenge? Put Jesus at the center. And whatever you're facing in your life, whatever's going on in your family, it's not going to make the problems go away but it will completely transform how you engage with them as we put Jesus at the center. Let me pray. Come Holy Spirit. Lord, would you enable us to dethrone the things that occupy the thrones of our heart instead of you? Would you, Holy Spirit, put your finger on them right now? Help us to put Jesus at the center of it all. Come, Lord.